No, uh, let's go Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. That's like the mission of our church, right? That's why we're here, uh, to know God and to help others know God. We say that a bunch of different ways. With a, you know, we try to wordsmith and get cute, but at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. We want everybody in here to know God. And if the scriptures are what he uses to uh, do that in you, then like do the math real quick. That's, that's just common sense. Start reading the Bible. He'll use it. All right, so we kicked off an effort a couple of weeks ago uh, to, be kind of, to kind of begin looking at the book of Ruth together. Ruth is a very short story sandwiched in between two larger stories, the story of the judges or the book of judges, and then uh, kind of the beginning of the monarchical system of Israel that starts being told in 1 Samuel. So Ruth is a tiny little story, four chapters long, kind of shoved in between those two much longer books of the Bible. Uh, in a literary vocabulary, Ruth is what we would describe as a pastoral vignette. All right? That makes me sound smart, right? I, I get, to, I get to, to be the the really smart guy in the room whenever I throw around words like pastoral vignette. But what is a pastoral vignette? It just means that it's a smaller story carved out of a larger one. All right? That's all a pastoral vignette is. It tells a smaller story inside of a larger one. And that smaller story happens in what we would describe or probably call a quaint rural setting, all right? and it's somewhat removed from the larger story, yet still influenced by the larger story. All right? And so in the context of Ruth, in our case, that, ta- that story is taking place inside the story of the Judges. Now, Ruth comes after the book of Judges in the Bible, but it's happening at the same time as the book of Judges. And we're not exactly sure when in that time period. We think it's happening towards the end, uh, but Judges covers the span of about two to three hundred years. And so there's a big window in there, but based on the personalities involved and we learn about their kids and grandkids and kind of where they fit in the timeline, we can assume that Ruth is happening to, uh, towards the end of the story, right? Right, uh, uh, it's just safe to assume that. Uh, but if you're not familiar with the Bible, or at least specifically not with the, the, you know, this story, uh, the book of Judges is not, it's not a pleasant time period in, in Israel's history. In fact, it's an incredibly dark period of time. Uh, we're told that in those days there was no king in the land of Israel, and everyone did, quote, what was, what was right in his own eyes. And in some places in our culture, some, some people might look at that and go, oh, that sounds like a great plan. That sounds like a good idea. Winning formula to some people. We happen to live in a culture right now where uh, we're kind of obsessed with the idea of personal autonomy in every arena of our life, right? It's the thing we chase after. It's the thing that we put on our highest pedestal. As if that idea was somehow never tried before. It didn't go very well for Israel. In fact, it was incredibly dark days for Israel. Israel ignored God's command uh, as they entered into the promised land. They ignored his command to drive out all the pagan, false, God-worshipping peoples in the land. And they only kind of halfway do that. They, they, they stopped before they were finished. And so they, they lived in a place where they were surrounded by pagan peoples who worshipped false gods. And it was never long until things became a problem. The story of the judges tells us about about the cycle of, uh, kind of repeating cycle of sin and slavery and rescue over and over and over again for two to three hundred years. Generation after generation goes by 
And God's people just can't get out of their own way. That's the story of the judges. They keep creating messes for themselves and they cry out to God for salvation and God finally listens to them and he raises up a figure to to lead them out of sin and slavery and that figure we call a judge is how we get the name, the judges. And so uh, they get them out of their mask and everything is great and everybody's celebrating how great is our God that he saved us. Yay God! And then a few years later they're right back into the mess again. For two to three hundred years. The book of Ruth zooms in to that, to tell a, a quaint little story, a pastoral vignette. It zooms in to tell that quaint little story in the middle of generation after generation after generation of national calamity, national level chaos. There's a famine in the land that we're told at the opening of Ruth, and that famine has an obviously spiritual origin. The people of God are being called to repentance. They're being called to turn to the Lord and trust in the Lord alone. And and in Ruth chapter 1, we're told the story that instead of repenting, a man named Elimelech kind of packs up his family and he moves to the neighboring land of Moab to try to make a new life for himself, try to provide for himself in a, in a different way. Now, and on the surface, that, that kind of sounds like a noble thing, right? Like, like who, doesn't, who gets mad at the guy who just wants to provide for his family? It's not going well over here, so let's try strike out in the new place, right? Like, kind of our country's founded on that very idea, right? But Moab ain't it. When the story is playing out, Moab is... An even more sinful place than Israel is. Elimelech is ignoring God's call. And we find out in the story that God, God's not interested in giving him the fruitfulness that Elimelech so desperately wants outside of God. God just will not let him find that fruitfulness in a foreign land, not outside of God's way. And so over the course of several years, we learn that the tragedy begins to fall on this family. Fast forward through the story. Elimelech dies, and then uh, their two sons die, Malan and Killian. And, and Elimelech's wife, Naomi, is now left destitute in a foreign land with two daughters-in-law, no plan, and no hope of future provision. What a wonderful love story. Can't you just see that one on Lifetime later? So last week, last week we saw that Naomi hears that the famine has ended in Judah. There's, land, there's food again, plenty of food again, so she decides that it's time to go home. She's like, okay, let's pack it up, let's go. And we're also told that she starts out with her daughters-in-law. It seems like they're going to be moving back with her, but shortly into the journey, Naomi swings around and, and tries to send these girls back to their parents' house. And, and the reasoning for that is incredibly clear. Uh, both of these young widows, these Moabite widows, would have a, a much larger success, uh, chance of success in life, whatever you want to call that. They would have a much larger chance of, of finding fruitfulness, of finding success in life, of finding a husband and all those kinds of things if they went back and find some nice Moabite guy to marry them, right? If they went back to their mom's house, if they went back to their parents' house and and just kind of started over instead of traveling to a foreign land themselves. That's the logic behind it. And and, and Naomi can't provide any of those good things for them. And so there's not even a reasonable hope of a future with Naomi if they stick with her. And we're told that after a little bit of a back and forth, one daughter, Orpah, she kisses Ruth 
or kisses Naomi goodbye, and she turns around, right? She loves Naomi. She, she seems like she was willing to go back to Bethlehem with her. She loves Naomi, but she also wants the potential future that Naomi gives her permission to go chase after. And so she listens to Naomi's wisdom. She goes home, and there's a layer of obedience in her action. Her mother-in-law says, you'll be better here. Go here. And she says, okay, I'll do. But the other daughter, Ruth, she doesn't seem to care about what's reasonable or wise or practical. She's, we're told that she clings to Naomi. She clings to her literally, like she's physically hanging on to her. But she also clings to Naomi figuratively. Ruth rejects her culture. She rejects her family. She rejects looking for a husband in the best, highest likelihood pathway available to her. She rejects any connection that she may still have had to her former gods of Moab. Ruth clings to Naomi and gives an oath by declaring an oath to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. She declares that she will stay by Naomi's side, not just until Naomi dies, but until Ruth dies. In fact, she says, they're going to have to bury me where they buried you. Get ready. Ruth responds to the pain and the brokenness around her by pressing in to a deeper commitment to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And an act of incredible love towards Naomi. Someone else is going to look back on this moment and describe it as a chesed love. An unfailing, loving kindness. Ruth assumes the burden that Naomi is currently running away from, living as a widow in a foreign land. Like somebody's got to do that. If if Ruth and Naomi are going to hang out together for any length of time at all, one of them is going to have to commit to being a widow living in a foreign land. And so Ruth assumes that burden for Naomi, right? Ruth owns that. She says, "I'll, I'll, I'll do that for you. We're also told, we're also told that That self-sacrificing action (laughs) causes Naomi to shut up for the rest of the way home. I got a couple days journey ahead of them. It's going to be at least two to three days walk for women at this stage of their life. And well, Naomi gets to think about it all the way home. But here's the unfortunate reality of the sin broken hearts inside of us. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this play out in your own life. I've seen it play out in mind. The the truth is that we don't always react to selfless love the way that we ought to react to it. You ever seen that? Selfless love always produces a reaction. That's that's a non-negotiable. It always produces an or a reaction. It's just not always the one that's supposed to produce. Not always the right one. We said last week that we're not quite done looking at Naomi's response to the pain and brokenness around her. Um, that brings us to verse 19. All right. um, Naomi's bitterness is built and dealt a blow, but Naomi's bitterness lends to deal a blow of its own. All right. So look at 19 with me. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And, then, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? All right, so what do we see? Well, we see that Naomi and Ruth finally make it back to Bethlehem, the place where, they, where Naomi comes from, right? And when they get there, what do they see? We see that the whole town is stirred up by their arrival. Isn't that fun? 
Naomi's been gone for at least 10 years by this point. It's likely to be a good bit more of that uh, than that. Uh, we know that that Malan and Killian were married for 10 years, right? And so however long it took for them to get to that point, and then however long it took for them to finally go you know, back, we don't know. But it's at least 10 years by this point that Naomi's been gone. But people still know who Naomi is. Um, I don't know if you know this, but small towns talk. <laughs> Those of you who are from a small town, you know. If you're not from a small town, you have no idea. Small towns talk, man. Um, they, they need something to do. There's not a lot to do in a small town. And so, like, the local industry is gossip. <laughs> they just got to have something to talk about. Uh, and so I guarantee, I guarantee that there are a whole bunch of people in Bethlehem who had an opinion about Elimelech packing up his family 10 years ago and moving. And in certain small towns, they're probably still talking about it 10 years later. But it's not just Naomi, though. She's got a Moabite woman with her. That's fun. <laughs> Now, um, we all kind of get the stereotypical picture of a small town hating the outsider, right? That's a caricature that we've seen, you know, troped all over TV whenever we watch it. Um, in some ways, that's an incredibly unfair caricature. But in some ways, it's maybe a little earned, all right? Um, that's how caricatures work. You take something that's kind of true, and then you blow it up out into a comical proportion, and then everybody gets to laugh, right? That's what a caricature is. Um, but, but this is not, this is not, merely an insider-outsider issue. It's not just that they don't know who Ruth is. Um, the period of the judges is literally a thing because Israel lazily interacted with the pagan people surrounding them. Like, that, that's what they're living through right now. They did not take a strong enough stance against interacting with the foreign peoples and their foreign gods that were living around them. And because of that laziness, they fell into capitulation and then into acceptance and then into embracing those foreign gods and then finally into slavery at the hands of those pagan nations surrounding them, right? And so, like, they just got out of a giant famine. And now, well, there's a Moabite walking through town. Like, don't fly past the awkwardness for all parties involved here. There's a Moabite woman walking through town. We just went through this. Like, like well, there may, there, there may, may be some racial animosity kind of mixed into this. I, I think it would be in, incorrect to dismiss that entirely. But that's not at all the main thing that's going on here. This is an, oh, no, here we go again kind of moment. To those who don't know Ruth yet, she embodies what just might be the kickoff event of the very next famine coming down the pipe. They don't know Ruth yet. They don't, they don't know her character. They don't know her, her story. They don't know the promises that she's made to Naomi and to their God yet. But they will soon. Naomi and Ruth, they arrive into town, and the whole town is talking. All the old-timers, they, they know who Naomi is. They know exactly who Naomi is. She's missing Elimelech and her sons. That obviously would have uh, you know, added fuel to the gossip fire. She's got some unknown Moabite girl with her. All right, all right, but, but local folk, they know their own. They know who Naomi is. A 10-year absence definitely changes people. There's no doubt about it. To lose all that Naomi has lost definitely changes people. There's no doubt about it. But small-town folk, they know exactly who Naomi is. And so while some, while some have argued that the phrase, is this Naomi, 
Some have argued that it's kind of a shocked whisper from the sidelines, people talking about Naomi and, and kind of under their breath. I'm more inclined to think that the end of verse 19 here is actually attached to what we see play out in verse 20. And look at that. She, this is Naomi talking, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara or Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, what we see here is the very first instance of the story. We're almost a full chapter in now, but it's the very first instance of the story where we see an interaction between the family and someone from outside the family. All right? It's all been internal dialogue up until this point. All right? All right? And so the narrator seems to have fast-forwarded in the story to a point where Naomi is now having a face-to-face conversation with someone else, or at least or a group of people. Right? Like maybe it's just the first one or two ladies that they meet upon entering into Bethlehem, first couple of people that they run into when they cross into town. Or maybe Naomi and Ruth have settled in a little bit, and the next day they're running around in the marketplace and they run into an old friend. We don't know. All right? We don't know. But whatever the case, Naomi seems to have been greeted by name here. Instead of whispers from the sideline, I think this is someone talking to Naomi. But upon hearing her name on the lips of someone else, Naomi retorts back, don't call me that. Don't call me that. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. Talking about what Naomi's name means probably is an important thing to do right about now. We saw a couple of weeks ago that Elimelech's name was ironic, right? A guy whose name means uh, my God is king was instead running away from God, trying his absolute best to be a king unto himself. Right? It was an incredibly ironic name. So, so does that mean that Naomi's name is ironic too? Well, Naomi seems to think so. Naomi, at least, seems to think so. There's some debate surrounding exactly what Naomi's name means. Uh, the root word is obvious. We know what the root word means. It means pleasant or sweet. Right? But it's not just the root word that we're dealing with. There's some stuff around the root word in Naomi's name. Uh, and so there's a lot going on there, and that's where the debate lies. Her name either means, either means the pleasant one, or some translators go with a slightly more problematic, the one whom Yahweh has been pleasant towards. And whichever one that is, Naomi ain't feeling either one of them. Right? She didn't want to be called either of those things. And so she, she says, no, 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 no. Naomi doesn't fit for me anymore. Call me Mara. Mara is, means the bitter one. The bitter one. Naomi hears her name called out loud. And she wants absolutely nothing to do with that identity anymore. Not who she wants to be. No, I don't, no, pleasant doesn't describe who I am. Call me bitter because I'm bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty, she says. Naomi lashes out in her anger. She wants everyone else to know just how upset she is. It's a childish moment of tantrum that I'm sure no one else in this room has ever been guilty of, right? Me neither. Here's the question, though. How do you think Ruth felt about what Naomi just said? She's standing there. I was full, but I went away empty. Or I came back empty. I mean, Naomi has certainly lost a lot, right? Like, but, but Ruth, what about, what about Ruth? It seems, at least in this moment, 
Naomi doesn't seem to think that Ruth counts for much. Here's another question. How, how do you think the woman or women talking to Naomi right now, the ones on the receiving end of this little exchange, how do you think they felt about Naomi's response? Like, this is, this is someone or some people who apparently know who Naomi is 10 plus years later. Can we call them a friend? I think we can maybe call them a friend. And by, and by calling out to Naomi, greeting her by name, <laughs> Naomi just kind of blows up all over them. Welcome home. Don't call me by my real name. That's not who I want to be. Call me the bitter one. Bitterness is a weird thing. Have you, have you looked at it very carefully? Bitterness is an incredibly weird thing. We tend to only ever think of bitterness as an internal emotion, but the reality is bitterness always, and I mean always, finds a way to the surface. Always finds a way to the surface. It's impossible to hide for, for very long. Sometimes, sometimes bitterness just kind of stays at a rolling boil right at the surface, just kind of kind of coloring or, or giving a tinge of, of skepticism and vindictiveness to kind of everything it touches, right? Like bitterness just kind of has that way of eating away at every single thing in your life. Uh, but then sometimes, sometimes bitterness just kind of just goes and blows up all over everybody else, um, creating usually a giant mess that you have to clean up later making the problem way, way worse. Naomi, she chooses to go the explosion route. Good for her. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. In a rush of emotion, Naomi, she hangs the entire cause of her, of her broken circumstances on the Lord. She hangs every bit of it on him. I don't know if you've seen this in your own life, but it's definitely, uh, I've definitely seen it play out in mine. Bitterness not only needs someone else to blame for our problems, but it also usually turns the story upside down. I'm guilty of this. Bitterness needs to make ourselves look like the innocent victim suffering at the hands of some other malicious or negligent actor. Naomi makes it sound here as if God has somehow lured Elimelech and his family into Moab to sojourn in a foreign land under the, you know, some kind of deceitful promise of finding fruitfulness somewhere else. But is, is that what happened? As if fleeing a town during a spiritually induced famine could be accurately described as leaving with fullness. Yes, Naomi has lost so much. So much. Her grief is not only real, it's both natural and expected, maybe even outright excused in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. The fact that we don't see Ruth and whoever these unnamed friends are, the fact that we don't see them react to Naomi, the fact that we don't see them return, serve with an equal level of bitterness, that's probably a testimony of their gracious posture towards Naomi in her pain. All right? Naomi has significantly better friends than she understands. But in a desperate attempt to assign blame somewhere outside of herself, Naomi is still, still, just like she was last week, she is still accusing God of treating her with enmity. This is his fault. She still does not see him correctly. And so in a moment of unrestraint, where her, kinda, her internal bitterness comes exploding out of her to the surface, Naomi accuses God of treating her unfairly. Have you ever done such an outlandish thing like that? Or are Naomi and I the only ones dumb enough to do that? Say and think such things. 
I mean, if, if God only saw the situation the way I see the situation, right? If he, if he only knew how important this thing obviously was, he would value it as much as I do. If, if he only knew how much fill-in-the-blank meant to me, he would never take fill-in-the-blank away. I'm guilty. But say now that I like that, right? Like, we all kind of, we all kind of feel the awkwardness and unacceptable reality of questions like that. Bitterness doesn't merely rise to the surface and it doesn't just go looking for someone else to blame. Bitterness also apparently makes us pretty dumb. It's just the truth. We boldly declare things to be true in our bitterness that we would never admit in other settings. Never think was true at all. Thanks be to the Lord, man. He, He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is good news for me in my fickle heart that he is not reactionary to me in the same way that I am often reactionary towards him. Are you there? Are you there with me? I certainly deserve questioning more than he does. I fly off the handle in a moment. And it, and it is by his immeasurable grace, his otherworldly hesed, we could say. It's by his immeasurable grace that the Lord of the universe does not return serve in our, even in our ignorantly bitter, explosive moments. God is not treating Naomi with empty. And he certainly has not brought her back completely empty. No, he's actually insanely patient towards her. He's incredibly patient towards her. And he is actively preserving and providing for her through incredible pain. So much so that he's not done providing yet. Um, Naomi has lost much. Sin sin has absolutely wrecked her life and her future, but, but God is still there. He's still actively bringing her home. Listen, even as Naomi dives deeper into her bitterness towards him. How blessed we are that our God is harder to push away than that. Look at what happens in verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So not only has the Lord carried Naomi along in the middle of her pain and her bitterness, not only has God provided Ruth and her life as an incredible friend, who, by the way, seems to fight for Naomi even as Naomi publicly dismisses her value. That's, that's a great place to be in a relationship. Just another one of the, wow, look at how much Ruth looks a lot like Jesus moments in this story. Like, you may think you're a good friend, but Ruth outpaces every one of us. She definitely outpaces me. Not only has the Lord carried Naomi along, not only has he placed Ruth in Naomi's life, but we're also told upon their arrival that it just happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. In case you don't know, in case you're you know, just kind of new to the Bible, there's no such thing as just happens in this story. Not a bit, not for a second. 
In the weeks to come, we're going we're gonna to see how God not only provides for Naomi and Ruth, not only orchestrates their pathway, we're also going to see how his sovereign hand begins to redeem them and restore them. He's going to do both. And what's amazing to me about that understanding of what's to come is the fact that Naomi's bitterness in this moment can't undo what God has in store for them. That's good news for Naomi, and looking at my own life, that's good news for me. Naomi's crazy right now. She's saying things she doesn't understand and dragging others into her pain, into her bitterness, and it doesn't even slow God down. Naomi's bitterness cannot undo the things that the Lord has in store for them. And he's already working. By the time they walk into town, he is already working to provide for them before they get there. Well, we had plans to bless them once they finally arrived, but Naomi went and did something stupid, but I guess we got to shut it down for now. We will try again next week, boys. That's not how God operates. That's not at all how God operates. What God intends to redeem and restore is not beholden to our cooperation. He invites us along, yes, but he is never handcuffed by our ability or by our attitude or the failures thereof. And again, I need that to be true for me. I need that to be true in my life as much as it's true in Naomi's life. And these stories like these, like we often pretend that we're Ruth and Boaz, right? Like, like that's, those are the characters that we want to be when we start reading stories like this. I want to be a Boaz type of husband, right? I want to provide and I want to care and I want to protect. I want to be a Ruth type of wife. I want to cling to and fight for good things. No, I'm usually more like Elimelech and Naomi. That's the problem. How about you? Most of the time, I'm either the one who caused the pain or the one negatively reacting to God's solution based on my limited view of the circumstances. And like an infinitely better Ruth, Jesus walks beside me as a true friend. Sadly, sometimes, even as I overlook how extremely valuable he is to me. And maybe even sometimes decide to complain about how empty I am, even with him. Listen, maybe you've lost a lot in life. Who knows? Maybe even as much as Naomi has. Maybe maybe that's you. But if the story of Ruth is true, if it teaches us anything this morning, it also teaches us that if you know Jesus, God has not left you empty either. Ever. But, but what if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus yet? What, what, <laughs> I mean, we talked about him as if he's always near, but what if he's not near to, to you? We'll, we'd love to introduce you to him this morning. The Bible teaches that God, we are separated from God relationally because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for our sin. The Bible calls it death. We're owed that punishment. Like Elimelech, we have rejected God as king, and in our sin, we have gone our own way, chased after our own twisted versions of fruitfulness on our own terms. Like Naomi, we have clung to our bitterness towards him, and we have spoken wrongly of him, and often tried to drag others into our bitterness as we have walked along. Uh, 
And so the Bible describes us as sinners. That is the correct category, and it's a problem. The, the good news, though, is that the Bible also teaches that it is while we were sinners. It was while we were sinners, as we were trying to be gods unto ourselves and wrapped up in our bitterness. It was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that I cannot live and you cannot live. And he died on the cross as a substitute in our place to make provision, payment for our sin. But then he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. As the one who stands over sin and death as the victor, as king and lord, He calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord himself. I'd love to help you do that. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have a time for people to put action to whatever God's calling them to do and through his word. And we'd love for you. I'd love to talk to you. If you want to talk, let's talk. But what if you're, what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How can we respond? We repent of our sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I think, he's, I think he's showing us that he is lovingly kind and patiently steady even as we completely miss the mark in our response to him. When brokenness and pain hit close to home, we often assume the worst out of him and the worst out of others. We lash out at others that may even be trying to help us. We blindly accuse God of wrong. But listen, in spite of our failure, he is still good. And thankfully, his hand is working for our good and cannot be undone by my ineptitude. By my bad reaction cannot be undone even when I act like Naomi. I think a right response this morning has to, has to spend some time thinking carefully about how we have responded to him in ways that, that, that didn't look like they probably ought to have looked. And then right on the heels of that, we, we need to celebrate his resolve in light of our lack of it. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe uh, you need to say yes, publicly say yes to the call he's been placing on in your life to to take the gospel to some place that's not here. Make disciples in another location. We'd love to help you process through that too. Let's talk. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond today, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Ruth. And thank you for even negative examples like Naomi. Yes, her pain and her sorrow and her grief were real. And so was her mischaracterization of you. Guard me from taking my circumstances and using them to define who you are. Let me see you through them instead your good hand guiding me and walking with me. Give me some Ruth-like figures in my life who speak truth and cling to me even as I'm an idiot, who fight through the ridicule and the nonsense 
If you see so fit, help me be a Ruth-like figure to those who are in pain. We love you. Thank you for loving us first and loving us better. Loving us unfailingly. For those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call men and women into your kingdom today? Help us be a good church to walk beside them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.